while the other person starts chasing my wife. So we, we're each moving as fast as we can with a person with a gun behind us. And after you know a few seconds of running, um, two rounds get fired at me, and uh, and it felt really close. I could feel the the bullet brushing my legs because I was wearing shorts, and and then it started derailing. My bike started grinding like like oh, I pushed no. too hard on the pedals. And episode two hundred and seventy-four, a transcontinental triathlon with Yannick Chenu, part two. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by One Eighty Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. All right, here's part two of the Transcontinental Triathlon episode with Yannick Chenu. If you guys haven't caught part one, it's episode 273 right before this one, so go check that one out first. I hope you all are having a great Memorial Day weekend, and I hope you're able to get out there and have some fun yourselves. And now on with the show. I just can't imagine. I mean, these any one of these three things is a major epic trip, right? And now you just yes. finished paddling 1,200 miles, walking 2,700 miles. You've been going at this for... Oh, let's see. You are, what, nine seven months month into in. it? Yeah, about seven, eight months in. Okay. And now you jump on the bicycles. So what was that transition like? Right. Again, you got to think about the objective, right? Don't listen to your body because after something like that, your body's telling you to take a break and to do something else. But we were we were driven. Uh, we actually set a rules to to not give up. You know, we knew that it would be challenging not only physically, but uh, emotionally, we know, you know, when you push your body really hard, you tend to break down sometimes, you know, and you have some some crisis, emotional crisis, I should say. But but we had um, we had agreed before we started that trip that we will not give up unless we really hate every single minute of it for two weeks straight. So we gave ourselves 15 days of hating it before we would actually give up. <laughs> okay. And that never happened. There are times we get close. There are times we went 10 days with hating every minute of it. And then something magical happened, you know, something great happened, and we get back into it. And we say, oh, this is great. We love it. So we reset the 15-day clock and and move on. <laughs> wow. That takes a lot of perseverance, no doubt about it. Definitely. So you and Shirley ended up getting married. So that tells me that the relationship side of things worked out pretty well for you, but you mentioned the, the emotional challenges, the physical challenges of it all. Do you think it helped to grow you as a couple or was it, was it really a pretty good challenge? It's, you know, we, we knew there's no point getting married before that. And we knew that this trip would either make the relationship or break it. <laughs> and we knew we would go through a lot of really hard things and that we'll have to, um, you know, to be very honest with each other. You, you can't hide your emotion or your feeling when you're going through, you know, physical challenge like that. You, you just be who you are. You know, there's no hiding happening anywhere. So, so for us, it worked out. <laughs> wow. It ended up, you know, forming the relationship rather than breaking it. But we had our doubts. You know, we heard several couples who did not last going through, through challenges similar to ours. <laughs> oh, no doubt about it. But because of everything that you learned through this trip, I would expect that it it kind of fortifies a relationship so much now, you probably feel like you could take on the planet. 
Definitely. Yeah, that opens up a huge door, right? And you're you're actually wondering is there a limit to this type of games, you know, that we're we're doing. <laughs> right. So when you started biking, to change from walking to biking, okay, we went from legs to legs, but it's a completely different motion. So was it pretty exhausting at first? Uh, it's actually, surprisingly, that was the easiest part of the trip. We bicycle 14,000 miles, but, you know, you can, um, you can glide, you can coast with a bicycle, which you can do when you're walking. The other thing, too, is you're dragging your equipment. You know, it's attached to your bicycle on, in panniers. So it's not like if you have to have all the pressure on your knees and joints and, and your shoulders are hurting when you're hiking, you know. So, so when we bicycle, we don't have all those issues. We, it's just leg muscle, no joint um, pain. So it, it felt like a breeze, to be honest. It felt like relaxing. You also have less of that boredom feeling that we had during the hike because you get to see a lot more scenery. The scenery is flying a lot faster when you're, when you're pedaling. Uh, I think we average um, about 60 miles a day, so about 100 kilometer. We just pick those round numbers, you know, to to give ourselves a daily goal. So 100K, 100 kilometers seem like the achievable, um, challenging enough, and and we get to see a lot during that distance. So here's a thought. When you're sea kayaking, you're pretty isolated. When you do Mm -hmm. the PCT, it's more social because you're meeting other hikers, but you're still in the woods. You're not in towns, right? But then mm-hmm. when you start biking, now you're on highways and roads and you're going through towns and cities. So how did that dynamic impact the feel for the trip? Definitely a lot more stress. You know, it's, it's strange because uh, I feel more at ease in the wild with bears around me and killer whales than I feel, you know, in cities. Uh, I think animals are more predictable, you know, because they're full of their instincts. So as long as you get an idea of instinctively you know what to do you don't want to invade their private space and you want to give them a lot of room and all this humans are a very different type of animal humans are you know they're good and bad humans i'd say the vast majority is good but you have to worry about um, getting robbed and getting attacked Uh, you also have to worry about cars and who's driving it are they on their cell phone are they under the influence of alcohol Um, so those are things you have no control over you might be the best driver, best rider on the side of the road. You can be hit from behind by a vehicle. And, you know, at that point, is just a, a toss of the dice. We had a few close calls uh, like this, by the way. <laughs> mm. So of the three, would you say that biking was your least favorite? Uh, we get to see a lot more sceneries. And, you know, unlike the, the previous two legs where we were in, uh, you know, English-speaking countries, now we're going into... Spanish-speaking country, so more culture change. I would, you know, it, it's hard to compare and put them side by side. Um, we like them all, um, but I felt more in control kayaking and hiking than I did bicycling. I really right. felt like bicycling. You know, like if I survive the distance, um, I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I mean? It's not about me doing something wrong. It's about are the others gonna let me live? <laughs> So sure. I felt that, uh, that, you know, that, uh, that basically lucky star above me while I was riding for the most part. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I can see that. Because, you know, if, if I asked my parents, they thought, oh, now you're on a bicycle. You're doing like most people do, you know. So they felt more comfortable about me cycling than it did about me being in the middle of the woods. But I felt the opposite. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can definitely see that. People often think of uh, climbing 14ers as a dangerous sport or maybe even distance backpacking because of the wildlife or the weather. But it seems like, to me, driving to work might be the most dangerous thing I really do. I tend to agree with that, yes. Yeah, it's just what we're familiar with, right? The unknown seems so scary. But when you've done the three different things like you did here, you're able to look at it and kind of quantify it and say, yeah, this was like this and that was like that. But for someone who's never done any of it, it all just seems so scary, perhaps, because it's unknown. Right. Yeah. So did you have a favorite country as you were biking biking through Central and South America? Did one pop out as, wow, this was just such a great place. Wish we could go back there. You know, definitely. Uh, Argentina, I'd say, was probably the country we, we liked the most. Um, there's a lot of beautiful sceneries. You probably heard of uh, uh, Tierra del Fuego or uh, Torres del Paine. Those are like national parks. Uh, Fitzroy, you know, those are big iconic type places. The scenery of Argentina is gorgeous and the food is out of this world. Mm. <laughs> it's always about the food, right? When you're burning so many calories each day, you're you're looking for amazing things to fill your stomach and, and motivate you for the next leg. <laughs> so help me out with my geography just a little bit. Argentina would have been almost at the end of your trip. Correct, yeah, but it's a very big country. I mean, the border, you know, between Chile and Argentina runs close to 2,000 miles. So it's more like 3,000 miles. So it's, it's, it's a big, big country, and there's so much diversity. And, and, uh, and yeah, we, we felt also safer there. You know, it's, it's strange to say, but the disparity, you know, between people sometimes, you know, makes you feel unsafe. Right. So being Westerners that, um, that can afford to bicycle for fun when most people in the third world country don't even know what vacation is because they work, you know, the land and there's no days off. Um, so us traveling the world the way we do, you know, we, we tend to make people envious, I would say, at least the bad people envious. And, um, you know, we're, we're easy target moving on bikes. And, and when we crossed into Argentina, which is, I'd say, a country with, with more wealth, we felt like, you know, people don't look at us as target as much, uh, but more like, you know, poor travelers. And we, we felt safer. <laughs> it might just be, you know, in our head, but um, we also had, you know, other trouble along the way that made us feel this way. We, we, we get attacked a, a couple times. <laughs> wow. So tell us about one of those times. What happened? Well, we actually had... Uh, uh, people firing guns at us at, at close range. And, and that, that's not something that, you know, most traveler would expect. Uh, as a matter of fact, we, we talked to hundreds of cyclists who, who travel long distances like we do, and nobody else had a story like ours. But um, we, were, uh, we were approaching Lima in Peru, and we were traveling along a very big road. It's called the Pan American Highway. That's basically the major road that crosses South America. And uh, we were along that road, you know, cruising along. We were probably a, a couple of days from the town of Lima, the capital. And, um, and we saw a couple of folks coming out of a cornfield that were, you know, coming from the side. And we had a, probably a minute or so before, you know, our path would intersect. And we calculated in our head that, you know, if we keep moving at that speed and they keep walking at that speed, we're going to meet exactly, you know, at, at the crossroad. 
by precaution, we decided to pick up the pace and we noticed that they also picked up the pace. So, so at that time, we only had about 20 seconds to, to decide if we U-turn or if we try to beat them to the crossroad. We decided to pick up the pace and they did pick up the pace. They started running and they pulled guns out of their pants. Two guns, two runners. And at that time, we, it was very obvious that they wanted to rob us. And we didn't want to get robbed. So we picked up the pace. And again, we're calculating, you know, in our head, do we have a chance? Do we not have a chance? You know, what are we going to do? And it's fight or flight at that point, right? right. We're not really discussing. We're just trying to survive um, like a predator and a prey. And as we pick up the pace, um, I was a little faster than, than my wife at the time. <laughs> Although, you know, we're carrying a ton of weight on our bikes in, in the bags. We build momentum. And there's one of those guys who pass in front of my wife's bicycle and start chasing me while the other person starts chasing my wife. So we, we're each moving as fast as we can with a person with a gun behind us. And after, you know, a few seconds of running, um, two rounds get fired at me. And, uh, and it felt really close. I could feel the, the bullet brushing my legs because I was wearing shorts. And, and then I started derailing. My bike started grinding like... Like oh, I pushed too no. hard on the pedals. And and when those first two rounds got shot, that got fired, um, my wife started yelling to kind of, uh, you know, distract the gunman. And he turned to her and she was still behind him. And he was, he was out of breath at that point. So he just, as she was passing next to him, he fired three rounds at my wife. And, um, and then, uh, you know, it looks like he was out of ammos. And we kept going, you know, the bicycle keeps gliding while the guys on foot have to stop. And we keep going and we give each other a high five, you know, thinking that it was a close call, you know, and we survived, you know, the, the adrenaline high. Oh, yeah. And um, and yeah, that was uh, definitely uh, emotionally exhausting, especially after we, we looked at our bicycle and realized that those were real bullets. Mm. <laughs> at first, we thought maybe they were trying to intimidate us. And um, they actually fired real bullets. And the, the grinding on my bike was because, because they sectioned a, a cable uh, on the top tube, tube of my bicycle. So, so those were emotional moments. And after that, we, we were actually questioning whether it was worth it. You know, should we continue with our trip? We're about halfway on the bicycle leg. Uh, we're not doing this to risk our life and to get shot at or, or die. So we were questioning. It took us, you know, a couple of days of, you know, discussion and decision and making peace with what happened and decide whether we would go on or not. We knew it was not a good idea to talk to our family about it because we knew exactly what they would tell us. Oh, yeah. So yeah. we just wanted to decide on our own without external influence whether what happened was something that happens a lot or if it was, you know, the oddity. And once we figure out that's that's really rare and that we were lucky but unlucky at the same time, we decided that, you know, things happen and we're just going to turn the page and continue with our trip. It's hard to say, but similar things could have happened if you were staying at home, you know, in the city somewhere in the U.S. Right. And totally. I mean, it could happen everywhere. We're just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, but we got lucky in, in the whole story here. Yeah, because we have good stories to tell. You know, I still have bullet impacts in the frame of my bicycle, um, and um, you know, 
Good stories. It turned out well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hoping when you said that the, they started firing rounds that they were just trying to scare you, like you said. But if, if your bike was hit, then they were pointed at you. That is, that is crazy. Right. And the interesting thing is uh, the impact on my bicycle frame is right between my legs, you know, where the, uh, where the, the fork intersects the main frame of your bike. Right. That's kind of where the, the bullet got itself into. How does that and, happen? And, and literally, it's just pure luck because I was pedaling so fast to run away from that attacker that my knee is moving up, you know, twice every second. And if my knee was up when the bullet went in, I would have probably had a, you know, an injured leg. So I was just lucky. My knee was down when the fire was, when the round was shot. And uh, yeah, it all turned out well for us. Okay. So we've got to, you've got to hear how it went over the next few weeks did did you find that experience to really be intimidating and, and make you kind of wish the trip were over? Or were you able to move on and, and enjoy yourselves again? I'd say, you know, the, the timing, again, worked out really well for us. Because Lima, which was only two days cycling from us, was the the town where we had planned to leave our bicycles in storage to go, you know, do some mountaineering in uh, in the Cordillera Blanca, which is, you know, where the, the high mountains are in Peru. So it turned out really well. We only had two days of, you know, questioning and doubting every human around us when we were riding our bikes. But then we had a month and a half to kind of make peace with it. And um, and we resumed the bike a month and a half later. You know, we, um, we were fine. Emotionally, everything was fine. But yeah, it definitely takes time to, to regain trust in people. Right. The same thing happens when you get a close call and you have a vehicle that almost hits you when you're riding your bicycle. You know, sometimes it's a big truck or, or a car. There might be a thousand cars that pass you, but one of them is not going to pay attention or is going to get too close for comfort. And then you start you losing your trust in everybody. I think it's a natural feeling, but over time, you know, you realize that people are good and, and, um, and you move on. And it really is true. Most the vast, vast majority of people, I, I've heard some people say, you know, 90% of the people are basically good. They're trying to live their lives the same way as everybody else. And you've got maybe nine, eight or 9% that maybe they're up to no good, but they're really not out to get anybody. And then you've got the 1%. And that 1%, <laughs> you just need to I would avoid. Think, yeah, I would think it's less than 1%. It's probably one every 10,000. And mm. in our case, it was just bad time, <laughs> bad timing. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. 
Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. So tell me about a really good experience that you had when you were biking. Well, the people, definitely. I mean, the people who, who talked to us, who offered us uh, food, offered us shelter, offered us to um, to live with us. <laughs> Ironically, right after that shooting incident, we were still in Peru. Um, you know, we spent the, the night after that incident at the police station in, in the next town. But then we continued our way to Lima, and we were really in a desert. It's, it's interesting because the coastal uh, part of Peru is a big desert where there's barely any tree, barely any vegetation. It's just sand dunes that get straight into the water pretty much. And um, we were about to enter a very windy, completely open section of the road. The last house before that desert starts, we pulled over. You know, it was late at night or just before it got dark. We pulled over and we asked for permission to stay on those people's land uh, or maybe use one of their walls for shelter from the wind. And we've had done that hundreds of times. You know, we ask permission to people and the large majority of the time they would say, no problem, just pitch your tent and, and we're out the next day. That happened to be a very, very poor Peruvian family who didn't even have a floor in their house. There's really bare dirt on the ground and they allowed us to stay and they, they insisted on you know, uh, inviting us for dinner, which we gladly accepted, but we actually brought our food and we had our stove, you know, camping stove. Those guys didn't even have a stove. They were taking twigs to to make a fire to heat up some water. Mm. We pulled out our, our stove that works with white gas, right? And 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 we, we made a feast for them. They were amazed by the type of food, you know, we were eating and we were so happy to share that with them. And, and those guys, uh, their main occupation is to raise guinea pigs probably heard that in peru you know people eat guinea pigs sure so we were in a guinea pig farm and we pitched our tent in the middle of those cages all night we had guinea pigs squeaking <laughs> and escaping those cages and just surrounding us and it was just the most adorable the most uh you know peaceful and i'd say soothing things we could have done and and we we just have an amazing experience from from that night neat so it's fun because, you know, we're talking about scenery for the, the first two legs of the trip an awful lot. And I ask you what your favorite experience is from the last, you know, extended bike ride. And it's, oh, it's the people. It's the interchange with, with the people and the culture. I think that's totally. really fascinating. That's great. Even in Alaska and British Columbia, the people were just amazing. You know, you get to know them because we don't have all the distractions of the modern world. You know, people don't have cell phones. People are not, you know, spending all their time in, in their electronic devices. We really get to know each other and get to communicate and exchange, you know, our our experiences. The reason we got invited a lot is, um, you know, to stay over at people is they wanted to hear our story. And uh, and a funny thing is, you know, uh, I'd say in a lot of the developing world, 
people are not really good with geography, but everybody heard of Alaska, right? So when we told them that our trip, our journey is going to take us from Alaska to the southern tip, uh, southern tip of South America, they automatically thought that surely um, my wife is actually from Asian descent. They always thought she was an Eskimo. Oh, okay. <laughs> because she has those Asian features, you know, and uh, and. When we told them we started in Alaska, they automatically assumed that we were from Alaska, which right. was not the case, but that, that was interesting. <laughs> and everyone thinks of Alaska in a special way, too. Yeah, they think of Alaska as people living in igloos, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. So what about tips or tricks for a long-distance bike ride? If someone else said, I want to bike the Americas and end up down at the southern tip of the sou- southernmost continent, what, what would you say for them? Um, I'd say, you know, make sure your bike is in order that, um, you know, you get the right tools because we get a lot of punctures and a lot of things to repair. There's also a lot of bike shops all around that can help you if you happen to be close to one, but, uh, don't overthink it, you know, just, um, head south. You can cover a lot of miles on the bike and you can store a lot of items inside all those bags and trailers or panniers. I'd say it's uh, definitely uh, a little more, uh, um, you know, a, an easier kind of trip than hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Mm, um, okay. But but overall, you know, if you like meeting people and seeing a lot of scenery, biking's the way to go. You can cover a lot more ground, that's for certain. For sure. Did you use a trailer with yours or just the panniers? We use the panniers and, um, you know, it's always a big decision. I guess everybody who's uh, preparing his bicycle has to decide, you know, what method they're going to use um, the panniers. The trailer, first of all, you know, uh, makes you wider. Uh, you have to be more cautious. You know, if you're on a, something narrow, like a, like a narrow trail, or if you're on a, on a sidewalk, you sort of have to think about how the trailer behaves behind you. Sure. We also, it would be harder if we need to, uh, uh, to put it in the back of a truck or something like that. You know, sometimes you, uh, Unfortunately, you have to have to get help. We had some tunnels where they would not allow bicycles that we had to go through. So you have to find a, a nice sole to, to put your equipment in the back of a truck and, and move it around. But uh, yeah, it's our choice went with Paneer after reading a lot of reviews online. And, um, and uh, we're glad we did. Worked out for us. So did you each carry a spare tire? Obviously, you had to have spare tubes and patches, but did you carry spare tires as well? We each did, yes. Um, you know, we're, we had to replace only one tire through our trip each, tire that worn out. So it's amazing that we still we still have to this date, we still have uh, one of the original tire from our trip. Wow. Um, the rear tire wears out a lot faster than the front because you have all the weight, you know, from your, your body weight, also the luggage you're carrying are pretty heavy in the back. So uh, tires in the back definitely wears are faster. So we both replace one of those. And, uh, and uh, yeah, the other tire is still in, in decent condition after 14,000 miles. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. So last question about the equipment here. What type of bike would you recommend? I mean, you know, we have ultralight racing bikes. We have touring bikes. We have mountain bikes, we have fat bikes. What kind of a bike do you think is appropriate for this type of a trip? You know, surprisingly, I'd say any bike is appropriate. Um, Along the way, we picked up, you know, we met a friend who decided to join us um, on about a month of bicycle riding. 
and he had one of those cheapy type, you know, bicycle that you can probably get in, in a retail store for two or three hundred dollars. And and it worked out for him. You know, it's it's really uh, a matter of what you feel more comfortable with. I know uh, typically the more expensive bike, you know, might have better components, might shift smoother. Um, but ultimately, you know, you don't need a lot of money to do something like that. It's any bike will do. Uh, the main challenge is to find a bike where you can attach all those bags to it. You know, right. uh, bike bikes with uh, um, those screw threads area where you can tie uh, or attach like the the luggage racks and things like that. Sure, sure. Uh, but if I were to do something similar to that again, um, again from my experience, I'd like to stay away from highways, you know, and be more spend more time on dirt roads. Uh, I would probably use more of a fat bike um, to do that. You know, you get better traction in the sand. And, um, you know, now there's a lot of storage compartment that you put inside a frame. So you don't have all those luggage protruding uh, on either side of your wheel. So just personal preference. Sure. So how did the the landscape kind of transition through Central, through South America, down to the southern part of South America? Was there a vast amount of change? I mean, you mentioned that the coast of Peru was a lot of sand dunes going right into the sea. But generally, what would you describe the landscape like? You know, it varies a lot. It, it changes a lot based on the elevation you're at. So after Peru, we actually went to Bolivia on our bike, and uh, we passed an area called Salar de Uyuni. It's a salt flat, a plateau that's at about 15,000 feet elevation. And it, it used to be an ocean, if you want to think about it like wow. this. So, so the, the floor is all white. And it's all salt. And the distances are so huge that, you know, it doesn't seem like there's there's anything on the other side. But you you just cycle through this for, you know, 40, 50 miles or so. And and finally, you see that um, that mirage on the other side. Right. Initially, it just looks like a mirage. But if you if you keep your your bearing straight, you eventually get to to the other side. It's just gorgeous sceneries. There's also. Uh, you know, a lot of high mountains in the north of of the Cordillera, um, or should I say the Andes, right? A lot of mountains, and they get smaller and smaller as you go south. So highest peak there uh, go up to almost 23,000 feet. And we had to pass some really high mountain passes um, on our bicycle. But as you go more south, the mountains become lower and lower. And what that creates is a lot of wind. Uh, if you're on the side of the mountain, the mountain sort of protects you from the high wind. But as the the topography, you know, becomes lower and lower, you uh, you get the full blast of that wind. So the southern part of South America, uh, called Patagonia, has like incredibly harsh winds. Sometimes strong enough that you you can barely pedal into it. Uh, if you look at motorcycle riding in Patagonia, a lot of them are inclined at a 30 degree angle, mm. just to compensate for the side wind. And what makes it very dangerous is you know you you incline your bike, bicycle or motorcycle, to to compensate for the steady wind. But if a vehicle passes you, let's say a bus or semi truck, you know it's just blocking the wind all of a sudden, and it's really hard to you know compensate for that change which is so sudden so you often drift into the lane uh, of of the vehicles next to you so something to to be cautious about um, i remember specifically um, a day in patagonia where the wind was so intense 
coming from the front that even in our easiest gear, you know, we changed the gear on our bicycle to make it as easy as possible. This is typically the gear you would use on a very steep uphill incline. Uh, we were going flat on the easiest gear and we were pushing so hard to move, you know, less than two miles per hour. Wow. So we easily, you know, decided to give up and, you know, go the next day. Typically, you know, from my experience, mornings are typically quiet and wind picks up, you know, in the afternoon. Um, it just never happened. <laughs> so we were camped for, for quite a bit of time. And, and then we decided that we should keep going because the wind's never going to let go. Wow. Those are really harsh winning condition and uh, very uh, few people will brave them. <laughs> it's just it's just horrible, actually. Um, it's not really enjoyable when you get sandblasted and wind blasted all day nonstop. <laughs> so what part of the trip did you experience this? You said as you went south, but where were you specifically? Uh, that's, for us, it started happening. I think it's seasonal as well. So that might have been, you know, based on time of year. But we started reaching that uh, southern Patagonia area uh, around early December. So so that might be when the winds start getting really strong. Uh, but I would say probably the last 12, uh, 1,200 miles, last 1,000 miles of the trip started getting uh, rough. <laughs> now, you can, you can pick your, your battle, right? I mean, if, if you're in a very exposed area, you can change your course to sort of a try to minimize those high winds. So for example, if you stay at the base of a mountain, even if it's a low mountain, you might be sort of sheltered from, from those extreme conditions. And a lot of people choose to, um, you know, from what we've seen, we met a lot of cyclists down there who choose to, uh, you know, to, to put their bike on top of a truck and, and just avoid that section altogether. And we were stubborn. We, we wanted to, uh, to finish our trip, you know, on human power. So, so we, we battled it and, you know, we're happy we did. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I chuckled a while ago, but you said, you know, the last 1,000 or 1,200 miles of the trip, and <laughs> I have to chuckle because so many people would say, the last 1,000? <laughs> you know, 1,000 miles yeah. is more than a full trip. What are you doing here? The last 1,000 can, can only be two weeks, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. On a bicycle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, very, very cool. So I want to go back to what you said about, was it Peru and Bolivia? Where you said you did some mountaineering. We should visit just a little bit about that. I mean, that's a part of the trip too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so as I said before, we, um, we thought, you know, it would be too much to bicycle from California to the southern tip of Patagonia because biking-wise, I think the total time was about eight months on the bike. Mm. So we wanted to break that up a bit and uh, allow us to, you know, experience something else, especially... Bolivia and Peru, which were on my to-do list for a long time and many years. So we had a friend fly in to Lima. Uh, his timing worked really good. He was able to carry some of our equipment, mountaineering equipment with him, which uh, we did not carry on our bike. So he brought that in and together, the three of us, you know, started to tackle very high peaks in the Andes. And uh, Mountaineering was our primary, you know, hobby and passion before we started that triathlon. So we had a lot of experience. We had done uh, quite a bit of mountains prior to that. Um, we climbed uh, Denali, highest peak in North America. We had climbed uh, Aconcagua, the highest peak in South America. We had climbed Elbrus, the highest peak in um, Europe. 
so we had done like some big mountains before that. So we thought uh, climbing in Peru was within our abilities. And um, it takes a little while for your body to acclimate to those altitude. But uh, in a month and a half, we ended up summiting uh, a dozen mountain above 20,000 feet. And as time goes by, you know, it gets our body was getting better and better. And uh, those altitudes are really tough on the body. You know, once you come down from one of those peaks, you need to sort of recover and regain a little more oxygen and, and of course, uh, try to eat as much as you can um, to make sure you're ready for the next one. But we spend a lot of time, yeah, mountaineering. And a uh, month and a half was just about right because after that, you know, it everything gets old for us. We're Whenever we do something too long, we tend to uh, to get tired of it. So a dozen mountain was just enough for us, and we were able to <laughs> to move on and resume the bicycle. Which you we're guys excited. are overachievers. That's what I think. You're just overachievers. Well, we take the opportunity when we have it, right? We happen to be <laughs> in Peru, in Bolivia, with no deadline, really. Um, you know, when when you work, you know, you're going to take a ten day trip, twelve day trip, two week trip, whatever it is, but you have a flight to get back. Right. We didn't have that restriction. So that really allowed us to, um, you know, to, to do what we wanted and, and bag, bag a lot of those mountains. Mm. The 180 flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Share with us an experience that you felt like was just outstanding that happened during this season of climbing 12 peaks. Sure. So, so probably our most memorable peak um, was a, a mountain called Artisan Rahu. And if you think about the, um, uh, help me here, you know that the, when a movie starts, there's that mountain that shows up with a big sure. peak. Yep. Is it Paramount? Is it Paramount? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that mountain... You know, in the Paramount image, this is Artisan Rahu. This is where the image came from. If, if you look it up on, on the internet, you'll see like it's it's so stunningly, you know, similar to to the Paramount logo. And um, it, it's a very steep face um, with a lot of glaciers on it and, um, you know, a lot of snow and ice and very few people get to climb it. And, and we were lucky enough to, to reach the summit after a lot of effort and, it makes us feel, you know, uh, very special in this world. Uh, that's what we love about mountains. You can be one of the few people on planet Earth, you know, to to be that high, to get that view. And, um, you know, it makes you sort of uh, appreciate, you know, being one of the few lucky ones. 
Oh, yeah. The mountaintop experiences are all the better for having, you know, the, the challenges of the climb. But I have to ask, after paddling, hiking, and biking, when you finally got to the, the tip of South America in Ushuaia, um, how was that experience? Was that a mountaintop experience of its own? Sadly, it wasn't. Ah. I mean, we were so glad, basically, that the whole thing was over. But the next thing that happened, we were glad we were, you know, we had accomplished the goal. You know, that, that was our life, our life goal for two years. You know, we were doing everything just to get to that finish line. And we passed that finish line. And all of a sudden, all our worries, our anxiety, our fears, all of that dissipated. And we're like, we're done. We don't have to get on the bike tomorrow. I mean, we're, we're done. Mm. And the most amazing is that feeling of emptiness. And we were looking at each other and thinking, what's next? I mean, you know, it's really hard to experience that in, in any other circumstance. But the feeling of wondering what's next, you know, I have no, no more project for the short term, you know, or even the long term. We're like, nothing can top what we just did. And it was just feeling blank, you know, right. you're completely relaxed and kind of lost at the same time, you know, you you don't know what's happening next. It's it's interesting. It's I still have that memory, you know, we finished that trip in 2012. I still have that feeling that's that's in my body of of how it felt to be worry-free. You know, in in a normal life, we all have our you know, things to do, right? We have jobs, we have bills to pay, we have to make sure our car still works, we have to mow the lawn. We have we have a list of things that's endless. But at that time, there was nothing on my to-do list, nothing, um, you know, a foreseeable future. The world was open to us. We could just do anything. We also felt like that we achieved the impossible, at least our impossible. And a, a huge door opened up. We're thinking, well, we've done this. Tell me one thing I cannot do. You know, it's just we were just expecting the next adventure to smile to us and, right. and move on. Now, I... <laughs> We were actually wondering what we would do next, and uh, our next destination uh, was um, uh, the Himalayas. Ah, okay. We felt like you know that's that's the next thing we'd like to go to. We'd like to spend some time in Asia, spend a lot of time around Tibet and Nepal, and and um, see what's out there. And uh, it turned out that uh, my old company, who had um, you know left two years prior, um, they were looking for somebody to work and that was in my ability so <laughs> without an interview really i was able to uh get a job back and i thought that's that's unreal somebody still wants me i'm still <laughs> worth something in the job market honestly i didn't think that would work i was a little bit uh you know worried about that you know am i still worth anything for the job market but right. people welcome me with open open arms and they uh they all wanted to hear our stories of course and and yeah, that was surprisingly smooth and and uh, effortless to get a job back, which you know speaks for itself, right? I mean, <laughs> what does it tell me as far as um, future? It means if I want to go on another trip, looks like I'm welcome to do so, right? <laughs> Within certain limits, I'm sure that's true, and that's a beautiful thing too. Is we started the show, we started this this visit here about talking about quitting the job to go do it and the, the scariness of that. And then at the end to say, 
Well, they just welcomed me back. I picked up where I left off. I mean, that's awesome. Pretty much, pretty much, except that it felt like Back to the Future. Because mm. we had left before the iPhone. We had left, left before the QR codes. And when we get reintroduced to civilization, as we know it, we, we were kind of shocked by the amount of waste that we produce. Uh, and by waste, I mean, you know, electricity, for example, right? All the lights that are on all the time. Right. We were living with two AA batteries and they would last us a couple months, uh, mostly, you know, from light at night with, with our headlamp. And all of a sudden, we're in uh, the world of plentiful where electricity seems to be unlimited and and you know and we buy things we don't need and we have a hundred of everything and we buy things because they're pretty when our trip you know to be honest like when a bicycle had two pairs of underwear right and that's fine you know i wear one for a week and then <laughs> assume it's dirty enough i wear the other one and watch the first one let it dry for a couple of days and i keep swapping i'd add um, two t-shirts two pairs of underwear couple pairs of socks and that lasted me you know a year <laughs> so very very different life you know you sort of adapt to the life you're in uh, when we travel the weight was uh, very important to us we tried to be as light as possible and uh, we'd prefer to have dirty underwear than to carry an extra pair of underwear <laughs> right all, all those decisions you keep making you know what's more important to you is is the pain and suffering of carrying a backpack uh, better or worse than having a clean pair of clothes. Right, <laughs> exactly. And then you, you get back into the Western society again, and uh, what a shocker. How long did it take for you to kind of get over that reentry shock? You know, I, I'm glad I had um, a job waiting for me when I came back, because in my head, it took me over two months to sort of become, you know, civilized again. right. Uh, that trip turned us into sort of mountain men, right? Like survivors. Uh, think about Castaway, uh, the movie, right? right? You live in an environment where your your priorities are different. Our priorities is we need food, we need water, we need to know where we're going to spend the night. Those were the only thing that occupied our our thoughts. We didn't care about bills because we didn't have any. We didn't care about the news. We barely heard about it. We didn't even have, you know... A cell phone with us so we uh yeah we focus on different things you know the human touch uh basic survival kind of uh instinct we get back to the basics i, I can say and uh, and readapting to the the normal world seemed uh special <laughs> just oh, yeah. having having a space to live in that's bigger than a bathroom because you know we really lived in our tent for the vast majority of our trip so we're looking at 20 27 square feet for two of us. So all of a sudden, you know, being uh, in an apartment <laughs> felt like total luxury. A hot shower was a blessing. You have no idea how many cold shower we had to have. <laughs> I'm sure. There were yeah. no other options. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow, what a fascinating story. We could go on for hours about this. I'd love to hear more. But let's uh, let's change topics just a little bit. You are raising money for MedShare as part of this expedition. So what is MedShare, and how did that go for you? Yeah, so, you know, we wanted, we knew we were going to do something big. And, and MedShare, you know, raising money for a charity that's worth it really helped us stick with it. You know, it's 
because you do things for yourself, but at the same time, if somebody relies on you, like Metcher did, to to raise funds for their charity, you know, it it gives you an extra motivation to keep pushing, don't give up, you know, uh, keep going at it. So Metcher, I heard of it from another kayaker um, that we met, who basically told us about it, and it's one of the most amazing and efficient charity that I've ever heard of. What they do is collect. Um, discarded medical supplies from U.S. facilities, whether they're hospitals or clinics. There's a very strict rules in the U.S. where you can't use anything uh, past this expiration date. Sometimes it's a medical kit, right? Think about a, a box full of supplies where there might be syringes, there might be bandages, there might be aspirin, right? Hospitals have to throw that away past the expiration date of the aspirin. And there's plenty of good items in there, right? So Medshare right. collects all those items from hospitals around the country, and then they ship containers of that to the countries that need them. And they keep a very nice inventory, and, and I'd say it's a very efficient charity because the equipment is free. Uh, all their cost is the shipping of those supplies to those uh, foreign countries. Mm. So $20,000 can bring a full truck size container of supplies to to uh, people that need it. So along the way, we we actually carried, you know, a fair bit of medical supply. I'd say at least half a paneer, which was about 20% of our space, um, was with medical supplied. And we talked to facilities along the way, mostly those uh, rural hospitals and clinics. And we told them, hey guys, you know, if you need supplies, we can get you those supplies. And they, honestly, the majority of them just thought that was too good to be true. They would not, you know, they, they were thinking, what's the catch, right? Right. So our goal was surely was to, to raise money so we could um, ship a container to uh, a clinic of our choice um, and allow people to, to get medical supplies that are perfectly, perfectly valid. Of course, aspirin will not be used because it's expired, but everything else, syringes, bandages, um, anything else like that could, could be totally fine. They even collect um, electronic equipment. So it could be, you know, breathing machines. It could be a wheelchair. It could be uh, crutches, anything like that, really, that's that's fully functional, um, could be used. Oh, that's cool. So how much did you raise for, for Med? Uh, we raised about $5,000, and mostly is through uh, uh, our blogs. Uh, we didn't get much visibility, I think, uh, on the Internet, Um because we're not really, uh, you know, web-oriented, let's say. Right. So, so we had a pretty simple blog, and we basically documented every single day of our journey on the blog. Um, I can give you a domain, you know, but you can probably find us by looking for uh, Yannick and Shirley Transcontinental Triathlon. Look, do, look for those words. You probably find us. Uh, but yeah, a lot of uh, people uh, like to listen to our adventures, and uh, and they, they contributed to that charity. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's Yannick and Shirley Transcontinental Triathlon. Just Google that and, and they'll find you. That's right. Cool. Very, very cool. Well, I think I need to close out here by asking you, I know that you didn't quit adventuring just because you finished this epic triathlon. What's on the, the future plans? Well, you know, we, we needed a break, right? I mean, that was, that was a lot of effort, a lot of... Uh, and we had to reset our our expectations. So, so we sort of took a break for a couple of years of doing big things and, and we had a, a baby along the way. 
we have a two and a half year old boy and and we're sort of relearning how to adventure as a family. Um, Right now, you know, we sort of uh, take turns. My wife and I used to do all those adventures together. Uh, Now as the baby is still pretty young and we don't want him to risk his life too much, right? We we take turns. um, So I go one weekend, she goes one weekend. But we we also um, acquired a climbing harness for our kid and took him on a couple of canyoneering adventures, of course, at his level. Right. Uh, he loves the scrambling around. So, so I guess what we have for us is, um, you know, some some fun trips involving rock climbing, uh, pig bagging, and so on. Uh, one, one thing we started doing, which we thought was pretty cool, is uh, making climb big mountains. So I'm sure your audience has heard of 14ers, right? Mountains above 14,000 feet. Oh, yeah. So my son has climbed a, a 14er at age one on my back, of course. <laughs> he has done two 14ers at age two. So this year, you know, his birthday is in July. We're hoping we'll, we'll back three 14ers um, this season. And uh, hopefully we'll go on from there. Give him oh, a sense great. of adventure as he grows up. <laughs> <laughs> so if he does one a year then uh, he could pretty much do all the 14ers in the United States before... Well, the, the idea is to give him uh, the amount of 14ers adequate to his age. So he did one in 2014 when he was born, and he did two the next year. Got so that it. comes up to three. So, I mean, so when he turns 20 years old, he's going to have to do 20 14ers in a year. <laughs> he's going to have to start doing repeats by the time he's, what, around 30 somewhere? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. You know, quite, I have there's to... quite a bit, right? Sorry to, to interrupt, but you know, you, you're from Colorado, right? You sure. know, there's quite a bit of those 14ers out there. Uh, I think there's 58 in the state of Colorado. There's uh, 15 in California, and there's Mount Rainier. So just in the U.S., we get a pool of about 80 or so 14ers to choose from. So. You won't run out of uh, 14ers, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. Well, I wanted to tell you, just from experience, you've started a new adventure with your son. And as he comes more into himself and, and ages into joining the adventures that you and Shirley are doing, I think that you might find that the greatest joy is re-experiencing that sense of adventure when you're doing it with your son, watching him discover the world for the first time and remind you of your own discoveries many years before. I I have found that to be such a delight, teaching my kids to alpine ski, to climb 14ers with my kids, teaching them to backpack. Um, It's just been one of the greatest joys. And there is a season there where it makes it difficult to do all the things that you used to do. But there's a future ahead of you that is so rewarding. So congratulations in advance for that. You're going to love it. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, very, very, very cool. Well, Yannick, thank you so much for your time today. And you really shared a lot with us, gave us so many insights and great stories about your experiences. I appreciate it so much. I really do. So again, uh, tell our listeners what they should Google to find your blog about the trip. Yeah, if you guys want to read our adventures, uh, just Google those four words, Yannick Shirley Transcontinental Triathlon. So I'll just spell the name for you. Yannick is Y-A-N-N-I-C-K. Shirley is H-I-R-L-E-Y. And Transcontinental Triathlon, people spell it all kinds of ways. (laughs) They'll figure it out. I love it. Very, very good. Well, thank you again for your time today. You're welcome. And for all of the listeners out there, as I always say, get out there and have some fun. You might not have the time to do a trip of this magnitude, but that's okay. 
Come up with your own adventure. Make it happen. It will be rewarding. It will change your life. Thanks for listening today to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Man, that was an epic adventure. I hope you guys enjoyed that. So stay tuned for Thursday's episode. Dakota Waltz stops by to talk with Kurt about some North Dakota rock climbing. Until then, get out and have some fun.